0: Bibles to John chapter 3. We're going to be basically finishing out John chapter 3. It's a, it's a long section. We may come back a little bit to um, next week to look at the end of it, but I think we'll be able to cover it today. Uh, it does It does divide into two sections, although uh, we, if you read chapter 3, look at John does this you know, all over the place. Um, you it's hard to it's hard to separate the words of of Jesus from the words of John the, the narrator so he's he's the one telling the story and very often his words will go um, the words of Jesus will then just kind of blend right into his own words and it's hard to tell who's commenting and who's actually speaking so and that's what we have here in this passage as well um, I think it I think it divides after chapter after verse 30 he must increase but I must decrease and then then you get this comment from the longer comment from from John but we're going to we're going to work through it and and um, by John I'm too many Johns in this chapter but uh, by John I mean John the evangelist the one who's writing the book and so that that seems to be from 31 to 36 and uh, so we have John the Evangelist, and we have John the Baptist, so we'll, we'll try to keep those straight. So let's pray, and we'll jump right in. Thank you, Father, for this time. We, we do pray that uh, you would uh, help us to uh, be edified this morning uh, through the preaching of your word. pray, Father, that uh, your word would be clear and your spirit would be uh, all in it and uh, at work uh, through it. We pray, Father, that uh, you would just do a, do a great work among us, uh, as, you, as you have been doing, as you are doing. and uh, We just uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John 3, 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in uh, at Anon, near Sal- Salim, because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a certain Jew about purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of what of what he of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the son will not see life. The wrath of God abides upon him. Last week, we ended by speaking of the judgment that comes or the judgment, as we see here in this text, that already rests upon those who, having witnessed the light that was coming into the world, reject that light. This light was, of course, the light of the new creation. Jesus himself, who is, who is the sign that new creation is coming and the means through which it will come about was the light of the new creation that was being brought into existence by the father through his word his son the one who rejects that light demonstrates that he loves darkness rather than light i also spoke of the way that the blindness itself the darkness itself is is willful and it often comes as a result of the deeds that we practice John doesn't simply say that our, the things that we love produce the deeds, although that makes good sense as well, but that our deeds can also produce our loves, that the deed itself has a holding power that working with the nature of humans leads to greater slavery and blindness. It is nothing less than a handing over of our powers as image-bearing humans to something other than God. This then results in the pervasive darkening of the mind such that one refuses to come to the light, to be exposed and then to be healed. This final bit seems to be John the evangelist's own comments on Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus and and a way to engage his audience so as to get his audience to examine themselves and their own response to the light of the world. To ask essentially, what about you as you look upon the light of the world? Will you too hide in obscurity or will you venture into the light to share in the cleansing and the enlightenment that he brings? The scene then shifts away from the scene that began with Nicodemus coming by night back to a scene featuring John the Baptist who we we saw in chapter two. John's final testimony, John the Baptist's final testimony, testimony is the central focus of this passage, but the focus of John's testimony is, of course, Jesus as the bridegroom coming to receive his bride. John returns us to the wedding theme of chapter 2 and looks ahead to, a, to the great scene of the woman at the well in chapter 4 who has had five husbands. There's a lot about marriage in this first part of the book, not the institution for humans, but of God's relationship with his people as their bridegroom, and they as his bride. In Jesus, God has come to receive his bride. And in keeping with this wedding analogy, John will speak of Jesus as the bridegroom, and of himself as the friend of the bridegroom, that is, the best man. It's a very old tradition to have a best man. The bride is left undefined, which in itself is an interesting characteristic of the gospel. And I would argue that this is intentional, intended to make the audience wonder about the identity of the bride and to seek to make themselves that bride. Like the Shulamite woman seeking the love of her bridegroom in the Song of Songs, chapters one and two. In this next scene, Jesus and his disciples have begun a baptism campaign, a retreat of sorts, but with people coming to be taught and then be baptized by Jesus himself or as he will say in the next chapter, they're being baptized by Jesus, but actually he's not doing the baptism. He doesn't lay their, his hands upon them. His disciples are doing the baptism. John the Evangelist recounts how John the Baptist and his own disciples were still baptizing, apparently anticipating the unveiling of Jesus as Israel's Messiah. We should note that here in John's Gospel, the baptisms... Uh, end after the initial phase in Judea. That, I think, is important. Likely, this likely happens after John the Baptist is put into prison, though we don't know that for sure. After that comes the unveiling of Jesus to Israel. This in itself points to a preparatory function for the baptisms as a whole. Now, what's interesting in this passage, and even difficult, is that in this story, in the in this story, um, the story itself never defines what is meant by purification. So we read at the um, at the beginning, chapter in verses 25 and 25 through 27, that there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a certain Jew about purification. And then it goes on to say, and they came they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was baptizing with you beyond the Jordan. Is now baptizing, and all, all are coming to him. What's going on here? So, what? This is, I think, very interesting because the, the lack of definition uh, of of purification is actually going to, to play into this next this next into the message of John the Baptist, his response to it. So, the scene shifts again to John's disciples coming to him to ask him about the baptisms that are being done by Jesus and his disciples over against the baptisms of John himself. In other words, the discussion about purification seems to be cut short and never addressed when John's disciples come to John to ask him about Jesus baptizing people. It seems that the discussion of purification is never resolved and that, and that it is pointless even to mention it. It is likely, however, that the discussion between John's disciples and the Jewish man about purification actually centers around these two groups of people in different locations who are baptizing baptizing, uh, seemingly for different purposes. In other words, John's answer about Jesus as the bridegroom and John as the friend of the bridegroom is the answer to the question about purification, and we will see how this is the case. Let me read for us once again this little passage and you'll see you'll see what I mean that it seems as though the, the question about purification is never answered but I'll argue that it is actually answered and it's answered in the allusions <coughs> that he gives earlier in the chapter to Ezekiel chapter 36 John 3:25 through 27 therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's go- John's disciples with a certain Jew about purification And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. And then John gives his answer. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Note that nothing in John's answer seems to be said about purification when they come to him. But I will argue, in fact, that John's answer is the answer to the dispute about purification. How can this be? First, baptism and water are themselves heavily symbolic of purification. Basarab mentioned how John seems to be alluding to Ezekiel 36 at the beginning of John Mm -hmm. chapter 3, when he talks to Nicodemus about being born again by water and by the Spirit, and this is correct. He has not left this allusion either. He's He's not left Ezekiel 36 Listen to Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, and you will hear the, you'll hear the connection that is being made in that text about purification and water, or in our text, purification and baptism. Ezekiel 36, 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Listen to the language. You will be clean. I will cleanse you, he says, from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Is this not purification language? Yes, it is. But up until this point, John in John the Evangelist hasn't related baptism with the idea of purification, but he is connecting it now. He expects us to get it in the illusions. Nicodemus and the audience, we who are reading the book, have essentially been told that they themselves must be cleansed from their filthiness and their idols, and this is through a washing with water and by the Spirit, also a theme of Ezekiel 36. and. Ezekiel 37, for that matter, the Ezekiel 36 allusion to cleansing, that is purification by water, thereby links the discussion about purification between the the disciples of John and a certain Jew to baptism. This linkage then means that when the disciples of John are concerned about baptism, as it relates to purification, they understand baptism to be symbolic of the cleansing that will come when the Messiah is revealed. The fact that they have a question about it for John as it relates to these dueling baptisms perhaps means that they don't understand why Jesus and his disciples are baptizing, baptizing if that was John's role uh, in the revelation of Jesus to Israel. So why are they both doing I think this is the question that he's, that he's dealing with. Why are you baptizing if Jesus is baptizing? Why are these, these dueling baptisms happening? And so this explanation actually makes sense of John's answer regarding his limited and specific role in announcing Jesus as the Messiah. To us, he doesn't even seem to answer the question. But to him, he is saying, look, he, he needs to make clear that his role in announcing the Messiah was temporary and specific in this future cleansing operation. And he will be content to do only that which he has been given. That is, he's going to be content within the role that he has been given. But there's more going on here. The baptisms that John, Jesus, and their disciples are performing are not simply about getting cleaned up in some abstract way. In other words, what John and Jesus are not saying by their respective baptisms is, you're filthy sinners and you need to get cleaned up. Sure, that is the truth. But that is not exactly what's going on. It's not, this doesn't happen in a historical vacuum. It's not some ahistorical scheme where you just need to get saved. You're sinners and you need to get saved. It's not what's going on here. At least that's not all of what's happening here. This is important if we're to understand the whole New Testament Jesus, Paul, all of the writers. The, this, this discussion is about something more significant the discussion between John's disciples and a certain Jew is more is, is some, about something more significant that was on the mind of every serious Jewish reader of Israel's scriptures. The language of purification is set within a larger context of the return from exile, so much so that it is largely assumed through the allusions and is rarely made explicit in the language of the New Testament. One has to know the stories of Israel's scripture Uh, in order to hear the echoes. But once we do, it is everywhere. And it changes everything from justification to eschatology. What do I mean that purification is set within the context of the return from exile? Let's look back at the Ezekiel passage that I just looked at and see how the language of purification is inseparable from New Exodus. Note uh, verses, uh, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 36. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. You hear the connection? I will gather you. What is that? That's return from exile. And I will cleanse you there is an assumption that the only way that Israel will return is to undergo a cleansing. In other words, one cannot talk about any kind of geographical return from exile without at the same time talking about a return through the purification that the Messiah brings. Why is this? Precisely because it was the idolatry and the filthiness that came about through idolatry, the darkness that they created, that sent Israel into exile. Remember the curses of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 that would come upon Israel if she disobeyed the Sinai covenant. <laughs> Deuteronomy 28, 15, but it shall come about if you do not, and this is just a small sampling, if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, with which I charge you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed you shall be in the city, Cursed you shall be in the country. First, you shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. What will the end of this cursing be? It will be the death of Egon. 28, 36, and 37. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. There it is. There's a connection between exile and purification or filthiness, the lack of purification. If there is no purification from the sins that sent Israel into exile, there will be no return from exile. And just as as, as an aside, Every time we hear about the Lord returning Israel to their land, we automatically think of what happened in 1948 with, when the UN set up, they took land and they put Israel in that land. Okay. That is not what he's talking about here. And this is, this is why it's so important. Um, now, I don't know what God is doing over, over in Israel right now, but that's not what he's talking about here. There is no returning to the land quote, without a returning to the Lord through his son whom he has appointed the heir of all things. Okay? So it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work to say that that is the return from exile. It is not. If they return to the Lord, they will be returning from exile. Sure. If there is no purification from the sins that sent Israel into exile, there will be no return from exile. So often we simply think about return from exile as changing geographical locations, but actually, Changing geographical locations is a huge symbol for the returning of the Lord. This message over and over again, if you're looking for it in the Gospels, and we'll see it in this Gospel as well, is that Jesus is inviting Israel to truly return from exile by embracing him. This is the only way to make sense of things that he says later in chapter 8. Like, you are not children of of Abraham. You are children of your father, the devil. Right. And you keep doing the works of your father. So he's he, so you can't say, well, here, they're in the land, they've returned from exile. When Jesus says, you're sons of the <coughs> devil. Right. So it, it just doesn't work. And so I think you know, I think in our modern mindset, we want to make that work so badly that we kind of force the scriptures to say something that they're not saying. But God has God has determined that he is going to bring his people back in and through Jesus, his son. Not any other way. There's not a route for historical Israel and a route for for the Gentiles. No. The the whole purpose of the gospel is to join Jew and Gentile into one body in the Messiah, into the body of the Messiah. So it's this message over and over again that we'll see. He is the one who will deal with all the filthiness and the idolatry that kept Israel in bondage. Now, I'll say a a word about that song that we just sang. It was... Very good. I love that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, Listen to the first verse. I think the the theology of this is really, really good. The only thing I would change is maybe uh, change it from the future to the perfect. So, uh, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel rejoice rejoice Emmanuel shall come to the Israel so you might say has come to the Israel right so he has come Uh, but but this is the whole point and I think that that him really really gets at something that's very deep within the within the scriptural story and that is that Israel needs to come out of exile she needs to embrace her savior and if she were to do that she would then be coming out of exile just as an aside if you think about the Uh, Luke 15 and the the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son, the prodigal father, who's who's really the prodigal one there, um, is the story of that is the story of Israel. There's the son, and he goes away into a faraway country. We often see this in a very personal way, and it is personal, and it speaks to us on that level. But the story is the story of Israel going into exile into a faraway country, And dying, being cut off. So he gets his inheritance early. He takes his inheritance and he wastes it. He's been given, Israel has been given her inheritance and she takes it and wastes it. Well, this younger son decides that she's going to return. um, That he's going to return. He's going to return to his father. And he's going to say, like, I'm not even worthy to be your son. And he says, accept me back, please. And make me like one of your servants because they had it better than I had it. In this this story, though, Jesus says, uh, or the father in the story says, this my son was dead, right? Now he's alive, was lost, and now he is found. This is a way of talking about the son being in exile, the exile of death, which we read about in Deuteronomy. And then coming back to life, experiencing a resurrection. Look at, uh, look at Ezekiel 37. It's the same thing happening there. They're dead. All the bones are there. They're raised from the dead. And they're brought back to the land. But this is actually going to happen through Jesus. And he's going to cleanse uh, the, sins the, the sins and the impurities. The sins and the impurities that they create must be dealt with. And these baptisms that both John and Jesus are performing are a sign that the time of purification has now come, and it is now time for Israel to return from exile by coming to Jesus for purification. This is why John doesn't point backwards in his baptism as the end of a process, but to the beginning of a time that will climax in what was truly needed, purification and return from exile. Now, I should say here that though he is dealing with Israel's need to return from exile, we Gentiles too, We were, apart from Jesus, in our own exile and need our own purification to participate in Israel's return from exile. We don't have to dehistoricize. The end of the age has come upon us, and we will either come out of exile with the remnant of Israel or remain in our own captivity of exile. This is why the message works for both Jew and Gentile alike. All are in exile in need of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus the very word redemption is a is a is a word that means the the purchasing of someone from slavery and in Israel's history this means purchasing them from Egypt bringing them out and bringing them out of exile uh, but for us it means purchasing us from exile right because we are the nation so so in the in the story where Um, Israel is driven among the nations. To be among the nations is actually to be in exile, which assumes that the nations are there in exile too, right? And so if the nations then come out, they too have come out from exile. And that's what the scriptures call us uh, to do. Now, this uh, this brings us to John's response to his questioning disciples, whose question goes something like this. Jesus is having success baptizing people are flocking to him. What does this say about you and by extension us? Now, as uh, has been pointed out many times, what follows is essentially the, the, the essence of humility. John, the forerunner and prophetic herald of the Messiah is seemingly being upstaged and rendered irrelevant by the one he has announced. The announcer fades into the background receiving the attention of the moment, only to see that moment fade when the one who is announced finally arrives and begins doing what he intended to do. Everyone forgets the announcer, but John is singularly focused on the purpose of his own mission and the joy he has as he sees the fruit of his proclamation. Here's what he says in 27 through 30. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. A truly humble point of view. To know one's place and simply do what God has you in the world to do. This is really the heart of contentment. Knowing one's purpose, however big or small, and simply doing it, not seeking to go beyond that purpose. It's what some have called a calling, a vocation. And this is what John had. For some, the purpose and the accompanying actions may be big, but for others, small but it's a very important thing to figure out that purpose and to walk in them in it faithfully. And this is what John has done. He is rejecting the call to do more, to be overly ambitious at the base of which is pride and avarice, not in a material sense, but in the sense of greedily seeking the spotlight reserved for the one he has announced. There's always a challenge in this, unless perhaps you're more pure than us, Uh, but there's a challenge to overstep the limits of one's existence that have been placed upon him, to resist the challenge of missing out on recognition, the challenge of not being recognized for something you've done when you think you should be recognized. Pride is a very strong force. I always uh, marvel at at how this wicked trait is somehow overlooked in those who lead us, our our politicians. when it is it is the very essence of what it means to be the devil what is one to do well we imitate the baptists here practically i think of it in terms of absorption one has to absorb one's own limits and to accept with grace the limitations placed upon him to not accept one's limits is to court disaster to be perpetually miserable and most importantly, to seek to occupy a place reserved for someone else. It's how the serpent became the devil. Leaving that place designed for him, he sought to usurp the place and role reserved for God alone, seeking to rule in God's place. But the word pride can be tricky to define. We are not talking here about being proud of one's accomplishment or those of others. John is quite proud of his role, so to speak. He is rejoicing greatly in the bridegroom's voice, the one whom he has announced. But he's content in that role and not seeking to go beyond it. That Jesus is baptizing means that that John's joy is about to be made full, he says in verse 29, and the mission is going forward. And that's what he's concerned about. What we have to do as followers of Jesus is to be content in the roles given to us. As C.S. Lewis says, to play great parts without pride and little ones without dejection, rejecting nothing through that false modesty, which is only another form of pride. And never when we occupy for for a moment the center of the stage, forgetting that the play would have gone off just as well without us. In terms of character, true contentment comes through the graceful acceptance of one's place within God's world and plan. John himself, doubtless, not fully aware of what Jesus's mission will will look like when it breaks out into the world, is indeed playing a large part within the purposes of God. But compared to Jesus, the bridegroom, he is playing a very small part, and he is doing it without shame. For John the evangelist, the calling of John has been fulfilled, and it is this role, it is the role of a witness, one who testifies to God's intention to do the work of the new creation. In John's epistles as well. So um, if you know John's epistles, you can always hear these echoes of of his epistles in in the book of, in the gospel of John as well. In his epistles, he takes up the same theme of witness, essentially defining his own role and those of us who know him to be the savior of the world as those who testify to Jesus and the life that he gives. First John 1.1 what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified, he says, to, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Chapter, chapter 4, verse 14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Note that this is similar to what was said here in John's gospel. But here it is Jesus who is testifying to what he has seen and heard from above. So I'm speaking about 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What, What he has seen and heard of that he testifies. So in the gospel, it's Jesus who is testifying about what his father has said. In in John's, in the epistle to John, we have uh, the epistle of John. We have seen and we testify. So that that testifying work that Jesus Himself was doing of the Father and His and His mission is now then passed on to His disciples. Yet no one or very few in the gospel hear His testimony. But if one does believe Jesus's testimony about Himself and the One who sent Him. He then has found, in verse 33, God to be true. He has found that Jesus speaks the very words of God and that God gives his spirit without measure, enabling those to believe in Jesus to confirm the truth of what is said. This is the the internalizing of the testimony of God. 1 John 5.10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. Verse 11. And the testimony is this. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. What is this testimony? Life. Nothing less than life. Eternal life. Just as he says in our present text. He who believes in the son has eternal life. All flowing from the love of God that he has for his son, and the love of God that he has for the world. In light of this great salvation, we should be able to say with John the Baptist, that one must grow, but I am to become less."